My name's Nathan. I'll be teaching this class and uh, excited to be spending the next six weeks with you guys. Um, this, this topic, um, this person <laughs> that we're going to be talking about, and especially the topic about the historical Jesus um, and his life, is, uh, is by far my favorite uh, subject to talk about. So um, this, is a, this, this is my favorite core class, um, and so hopefully uh, by the end of it, it will be yours as well. <laughs> but even if it's not, that's fine. Just by way of announcement, though, we are, we're kind of retooling how we do our core classes. So typically the more popular ones that people come to are like keys to effective Bible study. Anybody take that one before? All right, sweet. Um, Cover to cover. Anybody take cover to cover before? Sweet. Uh, Answering the tough ones, our apologetics class. All right, a couple people have taken that, um, which we're offering answering the tough ones starting in September. So you can kind of look out for that one as well. That's, that's, uh, that's our apologetics class that deals with just hot topic issues. We answer uh, six, we equip you to answer six of the hot button type issues that are going on in culture right now. So um, we'll address uh, anywhere from social issues like uh, same-sex marriage, which is definitely a hot topic right now, um, all the way to uh, the reliability of scripture or um, why do... Why is there evil in the world? Um, these types of things. All right, so definitely encourage you guys to sign up for those as well. Um, but like I said, my name is Nathan. I serve on the equipping team here at Watermark, and uh, am, am excited to um, be be with you guys. As soon as this cranks back up, then we can uh, start running through the slides. Um, the other thing is, if you didn't get a handout, there should be three of them back there. One of them is uh, so. Let me say this as well. Um, the class tonight is going to be a lot of uh, background um, and context type content. What I mean by that is, and we'll talk about this here in a second, but one of the common mistakes people make when studying the life or just thinking about Jesus at all is, uh, is, is not do the appropriate background and contextual work that it takes to place Jesus in his first century historical, political, social um, context. I mean, it, it would be like uh, it would be like somebody trying to read and understand you apart from the 21st century American context that you live in, right? That's asinine. Why would you ever want somebody to do that? And I mean, you you, you have to place the historical character in their context. So we're going to be doing a lot of uh, talking about that tonight. Although tonight, because we have so much content. Um, which, uh, which my wife is continually telling me, like, hey, um, you know, major points, keep it simple, because <laughs> um, I do like to get into the weeds sometimes. But uh, we are going to be covering so much content that uh, I wanted to give you a handout that you can go back and reference, and that's the historical context handout. That's basically um, a brief history, a ten-page, nine- to ten-page history of uh, the Old Testament uh, historical background and also the intertestamental period between uh, Malachi and Matthew, okay? So <clears throat> that's, uh, that's what that'll look like. And uh, I also, there's a lot of footnotes on that document. I would definitely encourage you to read the footnotes. There a lot of the color commentary that fills in the gaps are in those footnotes. I tried, when I wrote it, I tried to keep the, the narrative of the story to flow really well, 
but naturally, as you're reading, you're like, um, you know, like the, like the Canaanite conquest, right? They start to um, go in and, and kill off all these Canaanite people. Well, obviously, very naturally, people wonder, like, why did God tell them to kill all those people? Well, I didn't want to put a massive paragraph right in the middle of the narrative, so I just put it down at the bottom to explain explain that. So read the footnotes. There's a lot of color commentary in there. Um, would encourage you to go through that with your Bible. There's a lot of biblical references in it as well, and uh, I just think that would be really helpful. The second document is an equipping deal that I, I, it's a question I get asked a lot, and so I just wrote a, um, I wrote a response to one of the questions um, that deals with more of um, how, how do we know what we know about Jesus? And if Jesus was crucified in um, the, the early 30s of the first century, and the first, ma- the first existing manuscript we have is not until the turn of the century, that's a pretty big gap. So um, uh, one of the common uh, kind of skeptical arguments against Jesus is, you know, man, there's, that's a lot of time for stories to just be made up about him, for, for the early church to come up with something that would deify Jesus and then begin to worship Jesus as he was God, but he wasn't really, he was just a man. And so um, that, that two-page um, paper that's on the historical gap is a response to that critique. Um, oh, nice, sweet, good, thank you. Awesome. <clears throat> and then thirdly, the last thing I wanted to cover before we start jumping in is um, next week we're going to have um, books to, uh, back there that you can buy for $10 a piece it's Philip Yancey's The Jesus I Never Knew. Has anybody ever read this before by show of hands? Okay, great, sweet. I, it, it, obviously, you're going to get into this class, um, what, what you get out of this class, what you put into it. Um, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you read this book. It's very easy to read, all right? Uh, has anybody ever read anything else by Yancey? Um, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's very readable. He's very relatable. Um, this is one of the best introductory books into the life of Jesus that's out there. And so if you want to, over the next six weeks, read this book in conjunction with um, coming to this class, I think you'll really glean a lot more out of this class. Okay, so would definitely highly encourage you guys to do that. Okay, let's pray and then we'll get started. Well, Jesus, it, it seems appropriate that um, to start a class where we are diving into and discussing you, that we would um, ask you to come and, and uh, teach us. You make it really clear in Matthew's gospel that there is only one teacher, and I'm definitely not him. And nobody else in here is either. So we acknowledge that you are the teacher. And so through the power of the Holy Spirit, we invite you here. I pray that we would not just um, do a, an academic or a um, kind of pedantic study about who you are, but I, do, I pray that we would encounter you um, and the power of your resurrection. Um, so we invite you and we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. What are some common misconceptions or common mistakes that people make about Jesus? Um, I would say um, the, the first common mistake that people make about Jesus is, is they image him or imaging Jesus. What do you think I mean by that? What do you think I mean by imaging Jesus? 
okay? Yeah, like, hey, this is what I think Jesus is like, all right? I've seen, a, I've seen this a lot. I mean, you, you guys have seen the last week and a half or so, there's been a lot of social media traffic around social issues, um, especially the same-sex marriage issue, and so a lot of people are writing about it, and I've seen this a lot, especially preparing for this class. My, my antenna's been a little more further up than normal, and, and uh, as I've been writing, I've seen a lot of people who are, who are making statements like, I think Jesus would fill in the blank, right, um, on, on either side of, of, of that issue. So yeah, it's, it's kind of like, here, here's what I think Jesus would, would, um, was like and, and what he would do in this situation. That's, that's imaging, that's putting an image on Jesus. What else? Anybody else? When you hear the word imaging Jesus, what does that recall in your mind? Okay, good. That's right, yeah. At which, which for most of us, we th- how do we think about Jesus? In his physical appearance. Do what? A beard and sandals, all right. Yeah, exactly. We're actually going to talk about that uh, here in just a minute. But yeah, that's another way that we image Jesus. Um, and you know what the interesting thing is about imaging Jesus is whoever is imaging him, um, that Jesus that results from that imaging strangely looks a lot like who? The person who's imaging Jesus, right? I mean, um, and so in a lot of ways, and, and this is, a lot of people image Jesus and they don't even know that they're imaging Jesus. And that's one of the problems in historical Jesus studies is we, we read and we, um, and we think about Jesus in the, in the social and, and political and cultural context of our own lens, right? I mean, it, because we don't have any other choice. It's the lens that we view our world through. I mean, everything that we, everything that we encounter in everyday life, we are encountering um, activities, actions, thoughts, encounters relationally with people, encounters with our culture. We're reading that through a lens, it's the lens that's, lens that's been formed by your own family background, by your experiences, by, by the culture that's pressed on you, all of those things. And so to think that we can come to a study about a man who lived 2,000 years ago and think that that doesn't affect the way that we look at this man, that, that's naive. And so where I want to start is to challenge the concept of, of, of our cultural, historical, um, sociological lens we need to try to lessen our 21st century Western lens, and we need to try to strengthen our first century Hebrew lens. Because against, you know, all popular conception about what people think, or who people think Jesus was, he was a Jew who lived in the first century. Okay? And so, um, just recognizing that we, we all image Jesus in some way, but to recognize that and then to do our best to lessen the effect of imaging Jesus and to allow um, the, the historical narrative from the Gospels to inform um, and, and also the understanding of the political, the, the cultural background of the situation that he, was, that he lived in, that he taught in, that he in, interacted with people in. This is really, really, really important, okay? Anytime you do, and we, we talk, if you've taken the Keys to Effective Bible Study class, one of the major things that we talked about in, inter- in correctly interpreting the Scripture is context. I mean, context, context 
drives meaning in, in every situation. Um, you guys have seen this. You take one word in a certain context, and it means something. You take that same word and put it in a different context, and it means something else. And so um, this is part of what we're going to be doing tonight. But just recognizing that um, um, imaging Jesus. I mean, you, you know, you, you, get a, you get a football coach um, to sit up, to stand up and talk about Jesus, and you're going to get football Jesus, you know. And you get a guy from Austin, Texas, who's high on weed, and you're going to get hippie Jesus, you know. And you get, and fill, you fill in the blank. Um, you, get, you get Dallas materialistic, you know, uh, pursuing the world persons to stand up and talk about Jesus, and you're going to get a health, wealth, and prosperity Jesus, right? It's, it's, it's just, um, just pay attention. I mean, whenever somebody starts talking about this, including you listening to me, um, just think about, huh, I wonder how, how his interpretation of what Jesus looks like actually measures up with um, what we can know contextually from history and then also um, as we read that through um, the lens of the biblical narrative, namely the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The other common mistake that I think a lot of people make, especially in the church, but even when you get out of the church and you start to talk to, to people who are modernists or, or naturalists or skeptics or, or agnostic or whatever, is they, um, the dual nature of Jesus, which theologically um, we as Christians would affirm that Jesus is both God and man. He is the God-man. And so um, people can tend to overemphasize one aspect of his person um, at the expense of the other one. So in the 21st century American church, which aspect of Jesus do you think we overemphasize? Okay, why do you say that? Okay, yeah. So peace and love in what sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. So in society today, and I would agree with you, like in society today, um, society overemphasizes the, the humanity of Jesus, M- mainly because I don't, I don't think society is really recognizing the fact that Jesus is God, right? <laughs> but for those who, of people who do believe in God, how, what, what part do you think we overemphasize? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember now... Yeah, I may be unique from, from you guys in here. Um, this is just my story, but it's my story. I mean, I grew up in a Southern Baptist context, and I, I remember going to Sunday school, and my first recollection of Jesus was like felt board Jesus, you know? Um, anybody with me? Felt board Jesus, right? There you go. Raising the roof back there. <laughs> so felt board Jesus is the Jesus, you know, with the lamb, and they, they put the, the little fabric Jesus up on the felt board, and he's like, eh. And then, and then, like halfway through the lesson, he's he kind of slouching over, and then by the end of the lesson, he's fallen off the board, right? Um, and so there's this distance. There's this distance between uh, us as the people who are learning about this man and and this almost like ethereal type um, separateness to Jesus, where. Um, in some instances, like especially if you're highlighting some of the miracles that Jesus did, especially the miracles of him walking on the water, like you, you, you almost think of Jesus as like kind of levitating around, like he, you know, like he's going around like this constantly, you know, and with a halo over his head. And, uh, and so um, that can be easily misconstrued so that even when we pray t- to God or if we pray to Jesus, then there can be a relational distance between us and Jesus. Because it's like, 
I'm not really sure that you're really relatable because you're God. Um, and so I think, I think both of those, so the, the kind of whatever Jesus I want to make goes because we all need to just love and tolerate each other. And so your Jesus is great, and my Jesus is great, and whoever's Jesus is great. Um, that's a mistake, right? Because there was a man named Jesus, and he lived, and uh, a physical man. Like, if he walked in the, in the door back there and took a seat, um, just like you and me. Um, he, he interacted w- with people. He ate. Um, he had bodily functions, right? He went to the bathroom. He drank water. He, he, he hugged his friends. He laughed with his friends. He cried with his friends. He joked with his friends, right? Um, he may have had some jacked up teeth. I don't know, right? I mean, I don't think teeth were that healthy in the first century, but I mean, um, you just, the, these are the types of things that I think as we, as we begin to th- study and, and think through the life of Jesus, we need to, we need to think appropriately and accurately, and also, uh, um, this is an interesting point that I think is um, maybe a good one to jot down, but typically, um, we see when you study the early church, you, especially um, the primitive church, um, you, you see you see especially Jesus' disciples are very much wrestling with the deity of Jesus, right? Um, it, it actually takes a pretty remarkable event for them to be, to be convinced that Jesus is God. What is that event? If you're, ever, if you're ever concerned about saying anything right in here, the answer is either Jesus or it's the resurrection. Either one of those and you're probably right. Or both of Just say both of them. Be like, Jesus and the resurrection and you'll be right. Um, so yeah, it's the resurrection, and and uh, and that's why when Paul writes to the, his letter to the Romans, he says uh, uh, Jesus Jesus Christ was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Right? This is the defining moment, and so you you see his his disciples, and, and as we will go through the Gospels, you're seeing his disciples interact with him in such a way that that. It's almost like Jesus is saying things about himself, and they're almost like, hey, shh, don't say that. Like, that's not cool, man. Um, his, his family, um, in, in Mark chapter 4, they try to come get him and, and bring him back and say, hey, you've lost your mind, right? Um, this, is a very, um, this is a very human Jesus. And, and, and so I, I, I think if we can capture that, and then, then I think we'll be doing, we'll be doing pretty good. The third common mistake that I think a lot of people make is, is they think of Jesus in a vacuum, and and I've already said this a couple times tonight, but, but it's just the it's it's the failure for someone to appropriately appreciate the uh, historical, social, political context that was going on at the time. And, and frankly, a lot of the people that I've heard, you know, because Jesus is like the guy you want on your team, right? If you're, if you're for a cause and you're like, you know, hey, I, um, I want brown tables and not red ones. And oh, by the way, Jesus ate at a brown table, right? Then everybody's all of a sudden like, oh, you know, they got Jesus. <laughs> How are you going to fight against Jesus, right? Um, he's like the ultimate politically correct um, person to have on your side. Like, you know, G- Jesus did this, so... Um, we all should use brown tables. Um, and so uh, Jesus gets used a lot in our culture. 
In fact, I mean, when you start to think about um, people who are using Jesus, I mean, just some image, just the, I just, I just spent like 10 minutes and just typed in different kinds of Jesus, right? And these are the images that I came up with. <clears throat> black Jesus, right? You got black Jesus. And in case um, you're not okay with black Jesus, you got overly effeminate white Jesus, right? This is the, um, this is the white Jesus, um, and, and in case um, you're, you're down in Austin or you live on the West Coast or in Colorado, then you got hippie Jesus, you know, <laughs> where, he's, where he's kind of aside, but he's kind of quasi-pointing to the weed on his shirt, right? Like, check this out. <laughs> and then um, if you kind of want to be like cheesy or, or, bro, or like buddies with Jesus, then you've got bro Jesus, right? Um, I, I mean, um, man, I see that. I'm like, Really? Who came up with that? But somebody who wanted bro Jesus, um, like, yeah, what's up, man? Um, and in case, if you really want to, you know, kind of focus on the, this epic ba- dualistic battle between good and evil, then you've got arm wrestling Jesus, right? He's, he's, uh, he's in this epic battle against, um, against Satan and the, the powers of darkness, right? There's this struggle, whatever. And personally, my favorite one that I found was uh, bodybuilder Arnold Jesus, right, who is literally tearing the cross apart. What in the world, right? So this is bodybuilder Jesus. Um, and, and, you know, I think that, I think that when uh, there's some other parody videos that, that uh, I've seen in the past, I mean, I think a lot of times our, our culture will use Jesus as, as a tool to uh, propagate their view of something. Um, but really, I think a lot of times what our culture thinks about when they think about Jesus, and maybe this is you too, is, is kind of this, um, this distant, unrelated, unrelatable um, person who's a little bit weird and cheesy, right? Um, it's, it's, it's kind of like, oh, I, don't really, I don't really know what to do with you. And, and I don't think that um, you, you, you fit in my circle of friends. Like if, you, if Jesus ever comes up, it's almost kind of like, oh, like, we were just talking about the new sports and weather, and now you brought up Jesus, and it's like, it's like out of bounds, right? Um, so there's a little bit of a sense of like, I don't really know what to do with that. Um, so what's interesting, though, is, is uh, getting back to um, the uh, lady in the back there who, I don't know your name, but what's your name? Renee. Renee. What Renee said about the appearance of Jesus. Because a lot of times, and this is always an interesting exercise to ask people, and, and maybe I can ask one or two of you if you want to speak up, but when you close your eyes and pray to God, or if you pray, let's say you pray to Jesus, what does he look like? Anybody want to speak up? <laughs> What's your name? Doug? That's tight. Yeah, Doug is like, mm, come on, bodybuilder Jesus. You know, Lord, Tear him up, you know? And uh, yeah, 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 that's, that's Arnold Jesus. Um, what else? Who, who, uh, when, seriously, though, like, I know this is a personal question, but, I mean, everybody closes their eyes and prays, or, or at least uh, probably most of you do. Um, when you pray to Jesus, what, what does he look like? Yours is the white hippie Jesus? Okay, good, yeah. Does he have a joint, or is it just like off to the side? <laughs> He's just chilling. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Kind of, kind of 
lovey-dovey Jesus? Would it be like a kumbaya Jesus or a cooler Jesus than a kumbaya Jesus? Okay, he's cooler than a kumbaya Jesus, okay? Yeah? Cool. Great. Thank you. Who else? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That, that's him. All right. Yeah. There you go. Good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, for a while there, for, 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 I, I've thought about this a couple times, um, but for a while there, uh, the Jesus that I pictured when I closed my eyes and prayed was Jim Caviezel, right? Um, so I, I wonder if he gets that often. Like, like uh, hey, Jim, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I'm praying to God, but for whatever reason, God looks like you. Um, that's kind of weird. Um, but yeah, we all, image, we all image Jesus in some capacity because that's, that's, um, th- those are images of Jesus that, that we've associated um, with, with this man. And yet, there, um, there was a man, and he, he had a certain look. Um, he had hair, and he had a beard, um, and he was a certain height. Um, probably based on the average of the day, he was probably between 5'8 and 5'9. Anybody 5'8, five, 5'9 five, in here? Um, yeah, Renee is. Sweet. Um, <clears throat> do what? Yeah. No, that's great. Um, so just in that, that's just an average Jewish uh, man. His, his skin was, because he was outside a lot, his skin was probably um, weather-worn, beaten by the sun, right? Um, his feet were definitely... Um, you, you know, worn from walking in the, you know, the sands and rock, really rocks, if you've been there, um, the rocks of, of Palestine. Um, I mean, he, he, he grew up in, in a certain trade. I mean, he, he probably, I know typically people call it carpentry. Um, if you've been, has anybody been to Israel? Nobody in here? Okay. Um, would encourage you to go. It's, it's, a, it's a good deal. Um, but uh, when I was in Galilee, um, in, in Sephoris and Nazareth area, which those two towns are right next to each other, um, there, there's hardly any trees over there. Most of it's uh, either mud huts or stone. And so um, Jesus is, I mean, I'm sure he worked with carpentry, with wood, but he was also a stonemason, all right? So he's working with stones. His hands are rough. If you shake his hand, you'll probably notice, like, man, you've been working with your hands, all right? Um, he, he had a, when he spoke, his, he had a certain voice inflection, just like I do, just like you do. Um, and, and so... As we, as we talk through the life of Jesus, I, I, I think I would like for us to at least attempt in, some, in a certain way, and hopefully tonight will help that, but I'd like for us to at least, um, I would like for, for us to at least do the best that we can to try to actually enter into the story, um, to, to try to picture ourselves there with him as he's saying these things, as he's doing these things, to be shocked and amazed like his disciples were to be afraid like his disciples were, to be confused like his disciples were, right? I mean, I think if we can all walk away from here and be like, that, just, that wasn't just a class about Jesus, I, I think that was an experience with Jesus, then I think, I think that'll be a, a success, okay? Um, so about a couple of years ago, this may have been two or three years ago now, um, uh, some people got together and did a, a forensic what did a standard average Jewish male look like? Um, and so they did, they did kind of a computer composite sketch of the bone structure and the typical hair that, that went on and the typical beard of, of the first century based on 
um, you know, sources that we have from that time. And so I know y'all have appreciated um, looking at Arnold Jesus for a while, um, but this is what they came up with. Okay, anybody seen this before? Um, this, is, this is what an average, probably in a very average um, first century Jewish male looked like. Okay, and, and while I'm, I'm not going to say, hey, this is what Jesus looked like, because I don't know, um, I will say this is a lot closer to the image of Jesus than what a lot, most of us are used to. Okay, and so, um, and, and one of the things that strikes me when you see that is just like, really? Um, he's, he's, he's not the Renaissance Jesus with the long wavy hair and the kind of the attractive look and the, and the, the, uh, the one, like the, the actor in the Son of God movie and Jim Caviezel. I mean, these, these are like beautiful men, right? <laughs> I mean, you're, they're, they're kind of like, they pull their, uh, you know, the cloak over their head and they're kind of looking at you and, and you're like, mm, yeah, that's good, right? I mean, um, for this guy, you're kind of like, really? Um, but I, but I think that, you know, um, whether Isaiah was talking um, directly about Jesus or if he was just prophesying um, in, more in general, it's up to interpretation. But, but, it, but he just says that there was nothing about his former appearance that was appealing to us, right? Um, you guys familiar with this passage um, in, in Isaiah? And so, um, I, you know, I think, of, I think when you think about Jesus and as, as far as him being a man, um, he's a very common man, um, extremely common. Um, when it comes to uh, just uh, height, voice, complexion, um, look, hair, beard, you know. Um, and, and you have to remember, too, it's not like, it's not like they had, like, uh, the, the media and the TV crews following everybody around like we do today. So Jesus would walk into a village, especially early on in his ministry when he was less known, and you couldn't pick him out of a crowd, right, uh, unless you knew, unless you had met him before. Um, in fact, the only thing that really would distinguish him is, is that he probably, by the time um, he was leading his band of disciples, he probably wore some type of cloak that designated him as a rabbi, as a teacher. And so that's how people would notice him. Otherwise, it's like, which one of you is Jesus? In fact, when the temple guards go to arrest him, what do they have, what's, what's required? Hey, Judas, go kiss him so we don't arrest the wrong dude, right? Um, which is interesting. It was also dark, but, you know. Okay, so let's stop right here. And um, any questions so far? Any comments? Any, anything? Because for the next 45, 50 minutes, we're going to be going through a lot of historical, con- historical political context to place Jesus in his right. Um, we're setting the stage. So before we move on, anything? Anything you guys, anything I've said so far piques your interest or you want to talk about? Nothing. Yep. What's your name? Hey, Holly. What's the title of the book? Biff? I haven't heard of it. It sounds like it's, it's probably like a, in the genre of literature of what they call historical narrative, where they're writing a fictional story in, a, in an actual historical context.
Yeah, that's good. Uh, Philip Yancey does an outstanding job of putting Jesus um, in his uh, in, in his first century context, um, but but also as a man, um, because you have to remember, like Jesus is born, and it's not like I mean, I, like uh, I have a, I have a two year old son, and then I've got another son that's on the way next month. We'll probably will probably be born while we're we're in this class. So if I like run out of here one night, that's where I'm going. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, like, my son didn't come out, you know, um, uh, d- uh, pontificating on the ontological nature of the Trinity, you know. Um, he came out and wanted breast milk, you know. And, and Jesus is the same way, right? He's born. Um, he's weaned. He's, he's raised as a child. I mean, I mean, and the text is clear about this in Luke. It's clear about this in Hebrews. It's clear about this in multiple places, that, um, and he grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men, right? He grew up. And so one of the, fa- one of the fascinating areas of study, and we'll talk about this probably in two weeks, um, or next week, um, is how did Jesus come to believe, how did he come to his own self-identity, right? How did he come to believe that he is who he said he is, um, which is a really fascinating um, source of, of, uh, of study, um, so yeah, now, I mean, Hebrews actually says he, um, uh, he, he learned. Jesus is learning things, right? Um, a lot, and a lot, of, you know, a lot of times, especially kind of amateur theologians, will hear that Jesus learned something, and they're like, what? Jesus can't learn anything. He's God. He knows everything, you know? Um, and, and one of the ways, like, like Paul says in, in Philippians chapter 2, he humbled him, or uh, uh, um, have the same attitude yourself as also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but what? He emptied himself, right? And part of that emptying was he, he shelved, so to speak, some of the attributes of his divinity. Um, and, and, name, and I think uh, omniscience, or his all-knowing nature, is one of the things that he shelved, um, at least in part. Um, we definitely see um, examples of Jesus um, foretelling things in, in the Gospels, but we also see him um, in other times where um, he is praying and pleading for things to go another way. Or he's even saying, um, I don't know, right? When his disciples are like, when are these things going to happen? And he says, I don't know when. The Father knows, right? And so I think we have with, uh, in, in Jesus, we also have um, an example for us, like Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest that we can't relate with. Right? He, he not only is like us, like us, he is one of us. Um, and so um, we, we follow his example. Um, anyway, yeah, that's good. Anybody else before we move on? All right, sweet. So if you'll open your, uh, open your other handout with the slides on it. And, and uh, I'm going to fly, okay? This is a lot of information, um, and I can't spend a whole lot of time on it. Although, I'll tell you if, you, if you do have a question about anything, just stop me, okay? And, and uh, we can pick up time in another way. So, whenever you, one of the, one of the uh, most crucial things we can do, we have to do about Jesus is, um, he, he's born as a Jew. Well, who are the Jews? Who is Israel? Um, and what, what's Israel doing, <laughs> right? Uh, who are these people that he's born into, that he's one of? Um, and, and not only that he's one of, but like we'll talk about next week, 
that he claims he is the ultimate one. Um, well, these are the, uh, the Jews, the Israelites. So in 2166, um, so 2,000 years before Jesus is born, a man named Abram is born in the Sumerian city of Ur. Um, that is, uh, uh, Sumer is, um, uh, okay. well, I wish I had a map. Maybe that's something I should do next week. But um, Sumer is, is really the birthplace of, of civilization. Our earliest histories come out of Sumer, and, and, uh, and then it, it begins to spread from there. So modern-day southern Iraq, if, you want, if you're uh, thinking about it. All right. Then in 1546, so a- Abram is born. He moves to, to Canaan in, in uh, Palestine. This is basically Old Testament history. He moves to Palestine, and he has a son named Isaac. Isaac has um, two sons. One is named Jacob, and the other one is Esau. And Esau is the oldest one. They're, they're twins, but Esau is born first. And Jacob steals es- uh, Esau's birthright and then claims it for himself. And, and then from that, um, Jacob goes off. Jacob's definitely, if, you, if you're looking for a character reference or you're, if you're looking to model yourself after someone's life, don't let it be Jacob, all right? He is not the dude you want to model your life after. Um, he's swindling people. He's deceiving people. He's, he's being deceived. Um, he's, he's uh, yeah, he's not a good dude. Um, but the Lord chooses him. He chooses Abraham. He covenants with Abraham, and then through Isaac, and then through Jacob, who wrestles with God and is renamed Israel. And then, uh, and then Jacob has 12 sons, and his 11th son is, is a guy named Joseph. And his brothers don't like Joseph, so they sell him into slavery, and he goes down into Egypt. There's a famine in the land in Palestine where um, Israel and his sons live, but, jo- but Jacob, I mean, I'm sorry, Joseph is in Egypt. And so, or the other way around. So there's a famine up here, but Joseph's in Egypt, who's in jail, but then he's building up the kind of agricultural um, center of Egypt and is growing a ton of crops. So the rest of the world who's in famine goes down to see Joseph and say, hey, we need food. And so he he gives them food and is elevated to the second in charge in all of Egypt. And then Joseph dies, uh, Israel dies, Joseph dies, his brothers die, and then the remnant of their family stays in Egypt, but after about um, three or four hundred years, the kings of Pharaoh don't recognize them as a privileged people anymore, and, they, and the kings of, of Egypt actually enslave them, right? You guys familiar with this story? Um, if, you've read, if you're on the journey, then you should have already read it, right? Um, but that's, Israel gets enslaved in Egypt. Then in 1446, they cry out to Yahweh, who is God, they cry out to Yahweh, and Yahweh sends uh, his prophet, Moses. And Moses is the intermediary between Pharaoh and God. And he basically is warning Pharaoh a lot, hey, dude, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no. And he's like, okay, bad stuff's going to happen. And it does. And then he's like, let my people go. And you guys have seen like the Prince of Egypt or uh, what's the latest one they came out with? Uh, uh, gods and kings or something like that, the Exodus, gods and kings. Um, he's like, hey, let my people, well, finally, Pharaoh's son dies. And Pharaoh's like, that's it. You guys are, you guys are the thorn in my flesh. Get out. And so um, the reason I camp out here for a minute is because um, as a Jew, by far the most significant event that's happened in the history of Israel is the Exodus. Okay? Nothing even comes close to this. And so when you're thinking about what is crucial to these people it is that, that Yahweh um, literally physically intervened 
in their history and saved them from oppression. You guys tracking with me? Okay, it's not like they had some far off God that they were praying to and oh, a couple things happened. I'm talking about like God showed up through the plagues of Egypt and he destroyed the Egyptian cultic um, worship centers and destroyed their gods and set his people free from oppression. This is a very personal, physical, concrete interaction between Yahweh and his people where he frees them. I mean, they go, they go up against the sea and Pharaoh's chasing them and the people are like, oh, we're all going to die. And the Lord's like, nope, got it. Right? And they walk across dry land to the other side. And then the army's like, well, dang, they can do that. We can do that too. And they go after him. And, the, and Yahweh's like, no, dude, quit jacking with my people. And so his people are safe on the other side and the Egyptians are moving through and he's like, man, you guys asked for it. And he closes the water on him and destroys the Egyptian army. God is fighting for his people, right? Um, this is, and, and it, what he's doing is he's showing them, I am setting you apart. You are a, you are a, a chosen nation. You are, you're not just a people, you're my people, right? One of the things I do with my son a lot, it's, it's very intentional, because I want him to know, um, is he's not just a son, he's my son, right? He has my name, and, and, and there's something extremely personal and intimate about that, and, and so I'll, I'll grab him, I'm like, hey, Nate, come here, come here, you know, and he normally is, like, playing with my shirt or pulling my cheek, like, this, you know, and, and I'm like, hey, you're my son, you are my son. And then, you know, he'll kind of look around and I'm like, hey, Nate, you're, you are my son. And he'll kind of tap his chest like, yeah, you know. But what I'm doing is, what I'm doing is I'm discipling him in, into an identity that hopefully one of these days, I'm discipling him into an identity where he's like, oh, I'm my dad's son and God is like my father. And, and, and my identity ultimately is in God the father, Right? And so what God is doing with his nation is he is discipling them into an identity whereby they are known as the people of God. Um, and, and, and the exodus is the defining moment um, whereby God intervenes and, and sets his people apart um, and calls them by name, right? Um, and in the story of Jesus, um, we see in a, in a very real sense... Um, a little bit out punting my coverage here, but and we see in a very real sense that Jesus um, is is also providing an exodus for his people, right? Um, and and is in a very real sense the Israelite, the one that Israel was always supposed to be. Anyway, fourteen oh six. So about forty years later, um, the the Israelites move into the land and they begin the Canaanite conquest. This is all in that. Uh, nine-page deal. So if you want to go back and read it later, knock yourself out. So the Canaanite conquest begins. They begin to push out, but they don't push out the people fully. And, and because of that, um, this uh, comes the period of the judges. And, and so um, Israel is set apart, called by name. They go in, but then almost immediately they begin to be corrupted by the Canaanite um, cultic worship practices of the people who lived in the land that they were supposed to drive out. You tracking? All right. So now they're being corrupted, which means the Lord is um, the Lord is like is disciplining them. He's saying, "Look, repent from worshiping these other gods. You're mine. Don't worship the other gods." But they do anyway, and so he he sends uh, some people to discipline them, and then he raises up a judge, and then that judge delivers them, and then the people 
slip back into idolatry. And then he sends people to discipline them. And then the judge saves them. And then they slip back into idolatry. And it's this cycle of, of sin that Israel is caught in in the period of the judges. Um, but, but ultimately, um, what happens is they say, hey, everybody around us has a king, and we also want a king. And, and so, um, uh, I didn't put this on here, but the first king of Israel is a guy named Saul. He disobeys um, Yahweh and is really kind of self, self-obsessed. And so, um, Yahweh looks around and he's like, hey, uh, here is the one. Um, and it, his name is David. Um, uh, David is king after Saul, and then uh, God makes a covenant with David. Somebody turn, does anybody have their Bible? All right. Somebody turn in their Bible to Second Samuel, which is in the Old Testament, chapter 7, um, verse 16. And I'll give you a little bit of context so whoever reads it, um, you'll, you'll know what they're talking about. But God is covenanting with, uh, covenant with David, and he's basically saying, hey, you are, you are, you, your kingdom will be a perpetual kingdom forever. Um, your descendants will reign on, the, on this throne for all time. And so he's making an, an unconditional, unconditional covenant with David that David's seed, his, his uh, offspring, would perpetually reign on the throne of David forever. Okay? So who's at verse 16? Raise your hand. Somebody want to read it? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there you go. Pretty clear, right? God makes a covenant with David. This is going to be really significant when we talk next week about what Jesus believed about himself because he refers to himself as what? The son of David, right? Um, really, this is really significant, all right? Um, David has a son named Solomon. Solomon builds a temple and, and uh, expands the borders and is really wealthy and then Solomon has a son named Rehoboam, and Rehoboam is a total idiot, all right? He's a moron. And what, what happens in Rehoboam's reign is the kingdom splits. It splits Israel to the north, ruled by Jeroboam. And if you've read the Old Testament, you'll know that Jeroboam also, Jeroboam was more of a moron than Rehoboam was. In fact, um, one of the common things that's repeated throughout the Old, Te- the Old Testament is, and his sins were like the sins of his father Jeroboam who led the people astray and led them to the idols, right? So Jeroboam in the north, there's almost no good kings in the north. In fact, I don't think there's any of them. Yeah, exactly. There's no good kings in the north. But then in the south, you have, Rehob- you have Rehoboam, and then um, there's mostly bad kings, but some good kings in, in the south, Judah to the south. Um, then in 721, um, Assyria, which, again, if I had a map, which I need one, but um, just to the north of, of uh, Israel is the, the nation of Assyria. You guys read Jonah, right? And Jonah goes to the capital of Assyria, which is Nineveh, right? So Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and he's going to the Assyrians to tell them to repent. Um, so that's, that's some contextual Jonah Jonah was ministering during this time. And, and so Assyria comes down, and they uh, basically sack the, the capital of Israel, which was Samaria, a city called Samaria, and they carry off the prominent people um, back to Assyria, okay? Um, then what happens is in 586, Babylon, so uh, def- actually prior to 586, but in 586, Babylon had already de- defeated the Assyrian uh, empire, and so Assyria had been put down, 
And now Babylon was coming down. Actually, they had beaten the Assyrians, and then they were marching down to, to beat up the Egyptians. And along the way, they stopped in Jerusalem and said, oh, by the way, y'all are ours too now. Um, and so there were three deportations, one in 605, one in 597, and then the third and final one in 586. And so the Babylonians deported the southern kingdom um, back to Babylon. This is known as the Babylonian deportation or the Babylonian exile. Okay? Basically what happened is um, from the time the kingdom split until the deportation, you had multiple atrocities committed by the nation of Israel against the Lord whereby they relied on, on the cultic worship uh, center of the Canaanites and other treaties with other nations that basically said, hey, Yahweh, I know you've been there for us in the past, but we don't trust you anymore, so we're going to go ally ourselves to this nation because we trust them. All right? If you read in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, some of the most, um, especially, in, um, in, in, especially in Ezekiel um, chapter 16, um, there is some really colorful language there about what the Lord thinks about Israel's um, behavior uh, with him in this covenant relationship, whereby um, he uses a lot of marriage language, and he basically just says, I mean, um, well, I didn't say it, the text does, but he just says, you're a whore. Like, you're whoring yourself out to these other nations. So to the Lord, this isn't just like, a, well, you shouldn't have done that, right? This is his wife cheating on him perpetually, right? Go read the book of Hosea. Um, Hosea, who's a prophet, is, is commanded by the Lord to marry a woman. Anybody know her name? Gomer, right? There's a name for you. I'm going to name my daughter Gomer in the world. I don't have a daughter yet, <clears throat> but anyway, um, but yeah, but the Lord is commanding Hosea to marry Gomer because he's trying to show Israel, hey, you are like Gomer. She is continually prostituting herself away to other men. And that's what Israel is doing to me, right? And I mean, I'm telling you, um, anybody, anytime somebody reads the Old Testament and you don't really know what's going on, do a little background work and I, the text comes to life because you're like, oh, Wow. This is really intense. This is intense language um, that the Lord is using. And so when, he's, when, when Babylon comes and deports his people, Israel functionally is no longer a nation. They're not a nation anymore. Um, in fact, right before um, Israel, or right before Babylon comes to deport the southern kingdom, the Lord says in Jeremiah chapter 3, he says, What? I'm giving you a certificate of divorce. Right? So. Guess what our re-engage friends over there, one of the interpretive challenges they have, right? <laughs> God is divorcing Israel. Okay, how do we work this into our re-engage curriculum, you know? Um, uh, but obviously, um, this is not a final thing. Okay, so the people are deported. In 539, Persia conquered Babylon. They actually did it peacefully. You ever read Daniel? Um, and, and a Belshazzar is partying, and then the finger shows up and writes on the wall. You guys heard this story before, right? Actually, that night, um, Belshazzar is partying, and Cyrus, the Persian king, comes in and actually peacefully takes over the, the, uh, the center of, ba- of Babylon. And, and then in 538, he actually he, he issues an edict and allows the Jews to return back to the land. Um, in 331... Uh, the Persian, I, I'm skipping a lot, but you can catch up all the, the other details in the paper. 
In 331, Persia falls to Greece under, who is the Greek commander? Anybody know? Do what? Yeah, Alexander the Great, right? Um, so Alexander is the strongest one to bring all of the Greek city-states, the, 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 uh, the polises, if you want to call them that, together, and then he marches against Persia and, and defeats Darius III at Galgamela, um, which is in, is in modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor. Um, so Persia falls to Greece, and now Greece is in charge. In 323, Alexander died because he also was not, he lived a really reckless lifestyle. Um, really accomplished military guy, but um, uh, wasn't the wisest dude. So 323, he dies, and then power was divided between some of his generals, um, namely two of them, Ptolemy and Seleucus. Ptolemy ended up setting up his, his house in Egypt, and Seleucus set up his house in Syria. Okay? Egypt is to the south of Israel, Syria is to the north. And, and the Mediterranean um, is, is uh, to the west of Israel. So you have a sea, I'm sorry, the other way around. You have a sea, and you have Syria, and you have Israel, and you have Egypt down here, right? So Egypt and Syria are fighting each other continually. Who's in the middle of that fight? Israel is. And so what you see is, it's starting with Egypt. Egypt has the upper hand on the Syrians, and so they push up. They push up into Syria and so for a while, Israel was under Egypt's control. And then, and, and one of the things that, that Egypt did was uh, they started to impose taxes. This is the first time we see this. We'll also see taxes in the Gospels, which the Romans adopted from this Egyptian, Egyptian practice. But then in 198 BC, the power shifted and Syria became really strong. And they defeated, they defeated the Egyptian army and pushed them back down toward Egypt. Now who's in charge of Israel? Syria is. All right? And Israel's just in the middle of that, like tapping out. Like, stop! I mean, it's, it's almost like these two giants are fighting in between you, and you're catching every punch that gets thrown. Right? So they just want it to be over. Um, however, one of, the, uh, one of the Syrian kings was a guy named Antiochus IV, and his, his nickname was Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. And he basically came along and came up with the really creative, awesome idea that he was God. <laughs> right? And so um, he comes down into Palestine and not only continues the practice of, of, paying, uh, of, of paying taxes, but he enters into the temple, steals all the temple treasury, and sacrifices a pig, which is an unclean animal, if you know anything about the Levitical laws. He sacrifices a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. Right? I mean, I really don't want to be, I mean, everybody's uh, of age here. I, I, I really, um, I'm not intentionally being crass, but I do want to get the point across, right? That this is like somebody, um, this is like your worst enemy coming and raping your sister in front of you, right? It's that kind of thing that's going on for these people. This is not okay. And so, um, uh, and, and then what Antiochus does is he's like, hey, you don't like that? I'm going to set up cultic worship centers all around Israel, and you're going to sacrifice pigs on those altars to my honor. Well, what do you think the Jews did? No. <laughs> We're not going to do that. Um, and so a guy named uh, uh, Matthias in the north um, was, a, was a priest of Yahweh, and uh, they were about to institute this practice in his hometown this is the Jewish version of Braveheart, all right? It's exactly what it is. <coughs> Excuse me. So, Matthias, um, uh, they're about to institute this. He's there. He takes a spear, kills the guards that are overseeing 
the, the worship to Antiochus, um, um, spears the priest of Antiochus and puts him on the altar and sacrifices that dude instead, right? And that starts a rebellion among him and his sons um, titled the Maccabean Revolt, all right? Anybody ever heard of the book of Maccabees? There's four of them, all right? First, second, third, and fourth Maccabees. And, and the books of Maccabees describe this rebellion, right? The, uh, the most prominent Maccabean was a guy named Judas, and Judas Maccabees, uh, basically, uh, his Aramaic nickname was Maccabah. And Maccabah is Aramaic for the hammerer, right? <laughs> so this is your William Wallace. Judas Maccabees is the Jewish William Wallace. And he literally goes all around in guerrilla warfare tactics, and he's just killing Syrian soldiers anywhere and everywhere in any way that he can, all right? And so there's a lot of bands of Jewish fighters that are fighting against the Syrians until finally um, uh, he, in, in 165, in, the, in November of 165, he goes, um, marches, has an, actually an army, and defeats the, the Syrian general Lysias and drives him out of Israel, and they go into Jerusalem, and they purify the temple, right, and, and reinstitute the worship of Yahweh in the temple, and, um, and, and, and then purify um, Jerusalem, right? Um, the, the Feast of Lights is what uh, the Jews celebrate this um, occurrence. Anybody know what the Feast of Lights is called? Hanukkah, right? So every December the 20, is it the 5th or the 6th? I can't remember. But in December, they celebrate the fact that the Jewish temple was, uh, was, was purified during the Maccabean Revolt. All right? So they drive the Syrians out, and that ish- ushers in now a, a, a Jewish independence known as the Hasmonean Dynasty. And the Hasmonean Dynasty lasted for about 100 years, but typically, just like with anything, you, you drive out the enemy, and then the enemy becomes who? Yourself. Right? If we're not rallying around the flag fighting an outside enemy, then we're fighting each other um, inside our own family. It's, this is just human history. Look at any civilization. They, they gather together, drive out an enemy, and then they kill themselves. That's what we do. Um, and if you think we're exempt from that, you're wrong. 134, corruption. <laughs> People start to try to buy political power. They start to... Um, jockey for position. People are being assassinated. I mean, it's just it's totally jacked up. Um, but Hellenization, which now, you, again, the Greeks are still in control during this time, and the Greek spread of Greek culture, known as Hellenization, um, is seeping into the political, social, educational system of the, Israel, of the Israelites um, in Palestine. Um, it was during this time that the two primary political parties formed. Anybody know the two primary political parties during Jesus' time? You had the Sadducees, which are primarily the ones, we'll cover this in a second, but they're primarily the ones who are just interested in political power. And then you had, during this time, they were called the Hasidim. And the Hasidim is just a Hebrew word, it's plural, it's, it's uh, Hasid, but Hasidim is plural. It's the plural, plural word for faithful one. All right, And the Hasidim, during this time, um, began to gather together in order to preserve faithfulness to Yahweh, and what they, um, what they ended up being, uh, being called is what? The Pharisees, okay? So you had the two, uh, the rise of political parties during this time. In 63 BC, 
a Roman general named Pompey sacked Jerusalem. What happened was there was a lot of political shuffling and people were trying. One guy was on the throne, then he got kicked off by another guy. And Rome paid attention to this and they were like, you guys are morons. And so if you guys can't govern yourselves, we're going to govern you for you. And so Pompey came in, he sacked Jerusalem, and then he installed Antipater, um, who's an Idumean king. An Idumean is, is, an Idumean is not technically a Jew. Um, Idumeans are descendants of Esau. All right? So you have Jacob, you have uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and all of Jacob's sons are Israelites. And then you have from uh, Abraham, Isaac, uh, and then Esau, and descendants of Esau are um, Edomites, or Idumeans. Okay? And so now you have an Idumean on the king, and he's not even technically a Jew. Right? So you've got a foreigner on the, on the throne of your of your country. Um, this is not popular with people, <laughs> all right? Not popular at all. Then in 44 BC, Rome has its own struggle, and Julius Caesar is assassinated. Et tu brute! You know, ugh, everybody's assassinating him all at once, right? And which, which prompts a Roman power struggle between two gentlemen. One of them is Mark Antony, and the other one is Octavian, all right? Mark Antony goes down to, he kind of flees, goes down to Egypt to try to consolidate power in Egypt so that he can come back up and march against Rome. And Octavian, who was a boy at the time um, and had a lot of really powerful friends, um, actually won out in that power struggle, and Octavian became the emperor of Rome. Um, in 37 BC, Antipater's son, Herod, he, um, he actually, the reason he's appealing to Rome is because during this time, Herod thought that Mark Antony was going to win that fight between Mark Antony and Octavian. And so Herod put all of his eggs in the Mark Antony basket, and Mark Antony lost. So how do you think that makes Herod look to Octavian in Rome? Not very good. Like, dude, you're on the wrong side. And so literally, Herod almost emptied the treasury coffer and took it to Rome to personally deliver it to Octavian to give him this massive tribute and say, I'm on your side, right? And when Octavian received him, he was like, okay, evidently it was enough money, right? And so he he was allowed to stay on the Jewish throne. In 27 BC, Octavian became... uh, uh, the emperor, and we had, you had the rise of the Roman Empire. In 6 BC, Quirinius, um, who uh, was just a, a prefect, a regional prefect, he was appointed um, as the Roman governor of Syria. And so remember, you, have Syria, you still have Syria to the north. At first, it was Assyria, and then um, Assyria was conquered by the Babylonians, who were conquered by the Persians, who were conquered by the Greeks, but it's still Syria, right? And so um, Syria is still to the north, and Quirinius is actually in charge of um, that region to the north that at the time was also um, included um, Israel, right? Um, there's, there's an interesting, there's a, there's a lot of, so that period from, from uh, really from, Persia, um, all the way down to 6 BC, that, per- that period is known as the intertestamental period. It's the period between Malachi and Matthew. Sometimes it's called the silent period, but as you can see, there's nothing silent about it. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of power struggle. There's a lot of, there, I mean, Hellenization was a huge deal. There's a lot of religious and social change that's going on in Palestine at the time. You had the Sadducees who were accepting this change. 
And then you had the Pharisees who were holding out and trying to continue to follow uh, faithfully Torah, right? the law of the Lord. And, and those people didn't like each other. I mean, some of the stuff you'll read about in that, in that paper is, I mean, they persecuted one another. Um, at one point, the, 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 the power brokers at the time, which included the Sadducees, crucified 700 Pharisees in one day, right? That's a bloody day. So they don't like each other either. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of just strife going on. And at the same time, there's a lot of literature that's being written during this time. It's not like these people are stupid people. That's one of the things, man. I saw this deal the other day on social media where somebody was, uh, he was denying a lot of things, but he was just saying, well, those people back in the day didn't know what they were talking about. And the dude on social media was a total, I mean, he couldn't even spell his name. And so I'm like, I'm like wait a second. Um, and I, sometimes I think this. I mean, did, did the people back in the day have, have the amount of information that we have now? No. But they were no less intelligent than us. In fact, I would argue in some cases they were more intelligent than us, all right? We've become a, we've become a culture of, of sound bites and social media, and which frankly is lowering our collective IQ, right? Go read a book. Go to school. Um, you know, think. <laughs> Interact with people in a, in, a, in a thinking, reasoning kind of way. Don't just regurgitate whatever is out there, um, which is what a lot of people are doing. It's really frustrating, as you can tell, frustrated. Um, but do what? Yeah, this is how I really feel. Um, so anyway, um, so there's a lot of literature that's being written at this time as well. The literacy, um, uh, rate is actually pretty high among Jews, um, because the very center of their cultural life is a book. What's the book? Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And, and, and this is not just something like, well, you know, to, you need to go to math class and learn your your, your uh, multiplication tables, right? This is, no, you remember the whole idea about like God intervened and called us his own people and this is who you are? That's what Torah was for these people. Um, it, it was an identification. It was, it was a, hey, I am, um, I'm not just going to read this book. This book is who I am. So, um, well, I'm out putting my coverage again, but there's a lot of literature that's being written during this time. This is one of, this is an excerpt from the Psalm of Solomon. Not the Song of Solomon, but the Psalm of Solomon. This is an apocryphal book. Sometimes shows up uh, in your Catholic Bible. It's a whole other thing we can talk about later. But uh, the Psalm of Solomon, chapter 17, verses 21 through 24. Again, this was written around 200 B.C. during that intertestamental strife period. Um, And this is from a Jew talking about the Messiah. See, O Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David. Remember, God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel. The son of David, at the time which you choose, O God, to rule over your Israel, your servant, and gird him with strength to shatter in pieces unrighteous rulers, to purify Jerusalem from the Gentiles that trample her down in destruction, in wisdom of righteousness, to drive out sinners from the inheritance, to smash the arrogance of the sinner like a potter's vessel to shatter all their substance with an iron rod, to destroy the lawless Gentiles by the word of his mouth. This is the Jewish prayer for the coming Messiah. What kind of Messiah did you think, do you think they expected? A warrior. Nothing less. Nothing less than someone 
who would march into Jerusalem, drive out the Romans, and set up his throne to last forever. That was, that was and frankly still is, the Jewish expectation for the Messiah. Okay? It's extremely important for our story um, because we see a lot of confusion around the person of Jesus who, who refuses to be this type of person yet. So in, in, uh, between 6 and 4 BC, while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, a, C, uh, a census went out among all the land that everyone should return to their family's house of origin and be counted, right? Um, and so, uh, so a Jewish girl at her prayers, right? And I'm not talking about like a Jewish 30-year-old woman. I'm talking about like maybe like 14 or 15, right? Um, a Jewish girl at her prayers. And all of a sudden, as she's praying, um, Mary, you'll give birth to a son, and you'll call him Jesus. Because uh, Yeshua, which means salvation, and he will, he will save his, his people from their sins. Right? And so Joseph, being the guy, that, being a stand-up dude that he was, was like, hey, I, I, I look... You're obviously pregnant. I didn't get you pregnant. Um, we all know how the laws of nature work. Like, I'll send you away quietly. You don't have to be disgraced. You can go away and have this child and create a story or whatever to, to cover yourself until an angel appears to Joseph and is like, hey, stick with it. All right? Um, the child that she's carrying is by the Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> Put that in your pipe and smoke it, right? Um, and so she carried him to term, and, and uh, they, they, they went down to Bethlehem to be counted, like everybody else did, to uh, the city of David, which, is, which was their lineage, um, the house of bread, Bethlehem. And uh, they go down, and while she was there, she came to term, and uh, she gave birth to a little boy. Um, and, and so we, we read later in the book of Galatians um, that when the time had fully come, God sent his son. He was born of a woman, and he was born under the law. Um, so um, Jesus is born into a very specific context, historically, right? There's a lot of strife going on. There's a lot of players um, at play. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of complexities to the, to the world that he is born into. And, and, uh, and yet, when the time was right, um, and it literally, um, this, this Greek phrase, fully come, um, is, is a, is a, the imagery of that terminology is that, that literally history was pregnant with the Son of God. And, and he comes. Emmanuel, right? Emmanuel. The, um, with us, God. Um, you think about that for the rest of your life. I don't think you'll even scratch the surface of that. So for the next 15 minutes or so, I want to cover a couple of other things. Um, but before I do, um, I do want to pause because I know, I know there's a lot. Um, I know you guys have probably worked today. It's been a long day. 
Um, I want to I want to respect that, um, but I do want to allow a conversation if if one needs to happen um, ab- about this, and then I can just I kind of move through material as fast as I need to. All right. So does anybody have anything? Questions, comments, anything you want to talk about so far? Yep. What's your name? Kenny. Kenny. What's up, man? Yep. Yeah, so not a lot. And the reason that is is because um, a, lot of, a lot of history that shows up in the, the biblical narrative um, is a, a, a surrounding, like, uh, let's take uh, um, the, uh, the Assyrian king Sennacherib, right? So um, Sennacherib come, comes all the way down to Jerusalem and he camps out. And, and besieges the city. This is when Hezekiah is the king. Isaiah is the prophet, right? And Isaiah is talking to Hezekiah, and he's like, hey, you need to be faithful to Yahweh. Yahweh will save you, right? And Hezekiah is actually a good king. And he's like, I believe you. Um, so Yahweh comes and um, totally annihilates the Assyrian army, like, o- overnight. <laughs> like the, and they go back to Assyria and with their tails tucked between their legs. That... Um, that campaign is actually uh, referenced um, in Sennacherib's prism, which is a, uh, a small um, Assyrian historical tablet, right? Um, but it's not friendly to the Jews because if you're writing your own history, you don't shame yourself, right? And so it is mentioned, but it's not, um, you know, in fact, you, if you read it, in fact, there's an excerpt in the paper um, from Sennacherib's prism. And Sennacherib is, is overly um, friendly to himself or, or uh, you know, uh, he's bragging. <clears throat> so we see, we see these, uh, uh, th- there's a mention in, there's a mention in uh, uh, some Egyptian um, hieroglyphics that, that mention uh, the Hebrew people, but it's not like they're writing and giving us uh, um, a parallel account to the Hebrew scriptures because why would they? I mean, um, I mean, I, whoever f- the Pharaoh was um, that the people escaped from, he's not going to write about that. <laughs> he's going to be like, hey, leave that out. You know? It's like the uh, commercial where the guy's playing golf. You know? He's like, don't count that. You know? Don't count that. Don't count that. That's the way people wrote history. So. Anybody else? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, so the, the text uh, gives us um, the, the answer. I mean, uh, um, you know, ex- Exodus chapter 3. Um, so Moses encounters this bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And, and uh, um, uh, the, the, the term um, Yahweh um, is, is, is just the Hebrew uh, translation of, of I am. It's a... Um, it's actually a derivative of the, the term or, or the verb to be. Um, so literally Yahweh is just, it, it literally is I am. And that's, that's the name that, that this deity, this God, gave to himself to Moses.
Yep. Yeah, I mean, it, even when, uh, you know, there's a, uh, man, there's so much to this. Um, so I want to I give an appropriate answer, but I don't want to take up the rest of the time. Um, there is a, uh, um, there's a reticence by the Jews to say the term Yahweh. Um, it, to them, it's known as the Tetragrammatron, um, which is just the four letters that is uh, Y-H-V-H or W-H. Um, and, and so they, they superimpose various words over Yahweh, and, and so they'll call him um, Adonai. Um, they'll, um, they'll call him Jehovah. Um, these, are some, these are some terms that um, are, are interchangeable with, with the term Yahweh. Um, but, but they, I mean, you know, the, the Jews uh, had, a, had a complex view uh, of God. I mean, definitely... Um, He's someone to be feared and revered. Um, this is why the, the, through the sacrificial you know, um, uh, laws that are given, in, especially in the book of Leviticus, God is dwelling with his people. But this is, for God to dwell with you is a dangerous thing, right? Um, because God is what? God's holy, right? He's set apart. Um, him and sin don't get along very well, Right? And so um, it takes a sacrificial system in order for him to dwell with his people so that sin could be con- atoned for that allowed the presence of God to stay with, with his people. Um, and, and yet, this is why the book of Hebrews is written. Um, because um, uh, really the sacrificial system was just the shadow of something that was to come. Um, and that's why in, in Hebrews 9 and 10 it says... Um, the, the, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Um, but somebody else's blood could. So we'll get there. Anybody else? Yep. M, uh, Holly. Yep, absolutely, yep. Today, yeah, that becomes a lot more complex, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's just the last hundred years. I mean, there's 1,900 years between, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think, uh, I think, well, as a Christian, I believe one of the reasons that God is not interacting with his people in that way is because he did, and they missed it. Um, you know, um, in, 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 in John chapter 1, I mean, uh, John, who is a Jew, right, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Um, nothing, everything that has been made has, has been made through him. And, and nothing that has come into, into being has come into being apart from him. And then skip down to verse 14, and it says, um, and that, that word, the, the word that has been interacting with you for thousands of years, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw him. We saw his glory. Um, 
and later in, in his letter, in, in, in his epistle, John says, I'm writing these things to you about the things that I've seen with my eyes. I touched with my hands concerning the word, <laughs> right? And so um, the, the question is, well, well why didn't God speak his word to his people anymore? And the answer is, he did. Um, now, Secular Jew, or, or the, the way that Judaism is today is a much more complex issue. Um, uh, a lot of Jews that I know, um, at least, um, there's a whole gamut of, of Jews who are religious Jews, or, and typically those are called Orthodox Jews. Um, and those are the ones that would fit, fit the, the bill um, of, of like a, a Pharisaic-type tradition who are, who are strictly following Torah. Um, and then, but primarily, if you're meeting a Jew on the street, more than likely this person is going to be atheistic. Um, Ju- Judaism for them is just a cultural deal that is their heritage, but they don't b- actually believe in God. And so, um, there's actually another handout. I, I taught this uh, class at Answering the Tough Ones about world religions, and that was one of them. So, if you'll catch me after, I can send it to you and show you. But hey, there's, well, now we've got four minutes, but just fine. Um, I'm not, uh, but I do want to cover this other stuff really quickly um, so that we can move on next week. So as far as education goes, <clears throat> during the first century, um, almost everybody went uh, from ages five to ish, 13-ish. You just memorized Torah, like rote memorization, like Genesis 1-1 to, you know, um, Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy. Um, uh, most males received an elementary education, so literacy uh, among the Jews was fairly high, reading and writing, interacting with ideas. But then they would become an apprentice of, of a trade, so a fisherman or a stonemason or a carpenter or, you know, you name it. Um, then you had secondary school, which is where um, some people would go. If, if you were good at school and you wanted to continue to learn, this is kind of like, uh, you know, high school or college for us. Um, Secondary school, um, you gain knowledge of history and the prophets, so you learn the rest of the Tanakh, which the Tanakh is just the Old Testament. Um, and then, um, if you were good at that, this is kind of the graduate-level studies, um, you would become a Talmud, or the plural of that is Talmudim. Um, the, these Talmudim would come to a rabbi, they would learn from that rabbi, they learned orthodox interpretations of Scripture, and then ultimately, they just followed that rabbi around. They imitated not only his teaching, but his life, Right? And, and Talmudim is uh, from the word lamad, the Hebrew word lamad, it just means to learn. They're learners. The Greek word for this is mathetes, the English word is disciple. Okay? They become disciples of the rabbi. They not only learn what he's teaching them, they imitate his life. Right? Um, there's, the way that word has progressed has a rich history to it. If you're really interested, I can tell you off to the side. Then you had a rabbi, if you, were, if you really you know, became a, a recognized teacher, then you would teach, and the, the methodology was largely influenced by the permeation of Hellenization, and, and uh, you, you began this like, master-student relationship. And it was, it was almost like uh, if you were a rabbi, like, um, you know, if someone wanted to be my disciple, they would come up and they would be like, uh, or you know, the other way around, if I wanted to be your disciple, I would come up to you and just be like, oh, you know, kind of praise you and be like, you're so awesome. Now let me ho- follow you. And you might ask me, well, okay, uh, you know, uh, tell me, Nathan, then, uh, you know, describe to me the, the overall message of Isaiah, including various interpretations for this passage. And I would have to tell you that, like, off the top of my head. 
And if I impressed you, then I might get invited in as a disciple, right? This is the master-student relationship that existed in Palestine at the time. Um, the, the yeshiva schools that came out of this is where these students would come out of the yeshiva schools and pursue rabbis to follow. Um, this is why what Jesus was doing was so counter to, to even his culture because where does he go? He, he goes to a blue-collar guy that's fishing with his shirt off and he's sweating everywhere and he's like, hey, you, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, right? Um, so, so even when it comes down, which is an amazing deal because you would think that Jesus with the stature that he has, he would want the elite. No, he doesn't want the elite. He wants the common person that will follow him with all their heart. Right? Because he, he's like, give me 12 of those guys and I'll change the world. <clears throat> he's not impressed with us. <laughs> right? This is not about us. This is about him and, and who he is, what he's doing through the power of his spirit. And then lastly, there's this term, everybody say it with me, right? Shmika. <laughs> um, Shmika is just authority. It's just the recognition by the community that you're a rabbi that was sent from God. Um, you're, you're allowed to teach new interpretations. It's really rare. Most rabbis did not receive um, Shmika, and the ones who did received it after they died. The community would come together and be like, that guy was really special. We're going to confer on him authority. What's fascinating is, is that even Jews who study Jesus will tell you Jesus is the only, the only Jewish rabbi. So you remember like uh, his baptism, and then you remember um, the transfiguration on the mountain, right? And, and the voice, uh, voice comes out of somewhere, right? And, and the disciples are standing there with Jesus, and, and it says, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And then at the transfiguration, he adds a line and he says, listen to him. And and so there are even um, Orthodox Jews who are not Christian who recognize, and uh, David Flusser was one of them, and he said this. He said, um, what's fascinating about Rabbi Yeshua, Jesus, is that he is the only rabbi ever in the history of Judaism to receive his authority directly from God. Right? A voice comes out of heaven and says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He's speaking for me, which is why he begins to teach. Go look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He begins to teach, and what do the crowds say? They're astonished at him. Why? Because he's teaching with someone who has authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. All they're doing is regurgitating what somebody else has said about the law. But Jesus is saying, you have heard it said this, but I tell you this. Right? And then lastly, we're a few minutes over. But lastly, the Pharisees, uh, this is the political landscape. These These are the major power players of the day. We already talked about the Pharisees. They're zealous for the preservation of the written law and the oral tradition. This is extremely important. What you have to realize is... Once the canon is sealed under Ezra, um, then you have the 22 books of the Hebrew Old Testament, which turns out to be 39 in English because we, we divide books. But there's 22 books in the Old Testament. And then um, you had, um, over those 400 years in that period, what you had was not only the written law that was passed down, but you had rabbis who would interpret the written law and come up with their own oral law. And that oral law over those 400 years began to be seen on the same authoritative level as the written law. You see what I'm saying? 
So a lot of what Jesus, a lot of what Jesus is railing against against the Pharisees is not necessarily the actual written law that was given to Moses. He was talking about the oral law where they were misinterpreting and, and pouring on more making burdensome for people. Um, this, this is the law that Jesus is railing against um, when he's talking against the Pharisees, who he definitely rails against. We'll talk about that um, a lot next week. Then you have the Sadducees. They're the aristocrats. They're the, they're the elite. They're the, um, power, they're, they're the uh, power-hungry um, you know, po- politicians. Um, a lot of the high priests were Sadducees because this was a political position. It's kind of like a, um, a prime minister. Um, they were deistic in belief. They rejected any kind of belief in any sort of resurrection. So definitely, as we would call them, a little more liberal-bending people. The Essenes were separatists. They basically said, hey, the whole world is jacked up. We're going to separate ourselves from the world and go live. And by our piety, we're going to bring about the coming of the Messiah. Um, in, our, in our day and age, you know, a, a lot of more like uh, pretty far right wing um, conservative, fundamentalist type people, you see this quite a bit. In. They're, they're, they don't really want to engage in the world because in their mind, the whole thing's going to hell, so why would I worry about it? I'm just going to pray that Jesus will come soon and not worry, right? This is kind of the same type of thing that's going on here. And then lastly, the zealots. Um, these are nationalist revolutionaries. Um, their beliefs were similar to the Pharisees, but instead of um, uh, uh, their piety bringing on the Messiah, they were like, screw that. I just want to bring on the Messiah, or I want to be the Messiah. I want to purify Israel myself. I want to drive out the foreign pagans with the sword, kind of like Judas Maccabees did, right? And that's what um, these guys were doing. At least one of Jesus' disciples, a guy named Simon, was a zealot, okay? Um, Some people could make a case that Judas Iscariot was also a zealot, but that's for another time, okay? So hopefully tonight what you got was a pretty good contextual look at what, where did Jesus come from? What, what are the people? What's important to them? What's the political landscape? What's the education system look like? And then next week, we'll talk about what did Jesus say about himself.